Well, good morning. Good morning. Open up in your Bible to Mark chapter 8. If you open up in Mark chapter 8, we'll, uh, we're going to land eventually in chapter 9. That's kind of where we are as we're working through the text. But start in chapter 8. Last week, we celebrated that Jesus rose from the dead. An amazing Sunday. I'm so thankful uh, that the opportunity was there for us to gather and to worship with, with, uh, with our church family and to sing the praises of our great King and remember together what He did, that He died, that He offered Himself to be the payment for our sins, the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice, and He conquered death. He rose from the dead. We believe that, right, church? We believe that He did that. He conquered death. He's alive right now. We're gathering again. Guess why? Because He rose from the dead. And we're going to gather next Sunday. Why? Because <laughs> He conquered death. And He is who He said He is. He's deserving of all glory and honor and praise. And we believe this, that the power that rose from the dead, that, that rose Jesus from the dead now indwells in us, His church. And we have been empowered to worship God and to love Him and to live for Him. Uh, we, we believe this. We really believe this. This is not a mere confession that we put on a piece of paper. Uh, we believe that this is true, and it shapes our lives. We want to live in accordance with the reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And yet, we have a life to live, and a life to live that is not always simple, not always easy, uh, often very difficult, relegated, we are relegated to remember at times that we are going through a fallen world that our expectations maybe that we had going into this life following Jesus is, it's not what we thought. So we believe that Christ conquered death. We believe that He reigns in glory now. And yet sometimes our lives in the day-to-day month-to-month, week-to-week kind of living, it's hard to understand how these things apply. What does it look like to live for Christ now, understanding that this is all true? What are your expectations of this life? What do you think it is to, to follow this Jesus that we have just claimed is now risen from the dead? We all have expectations, don't we? We grow up with expectations kind of built into our lives. We can't help but have expectations. Uh, Christmas Eve rolls around. How many of you guys remember as a child? You're waiting on Christmas Eve and you see all the decorations up and maybe the presents are out around that tree and you're just, your hopes are rising. Maybe you're going to get what you asked for. You're so excited that you can hardly sleep the night before, right? Christmas Eve, you're up all late hoping that you're going to get what you want expectations and then you take those expectations and you compare them with reality and often those expectations were up here and reality's somewhere here this is just life we're, we're always having expectations uh you're looking forward to get married and you're excited about marrying the love of your life and that's great that's the way it should be and we have expectations for how a marriage should be and sometimes life ends up being hard life and marriage can be difficult and Maybe then after that, you're looking forward to having kids. You have expectations. We have expectations, and kids are going to be awesome. We're really excited, and they are, and it is exciting. And sometimes it's much more difficult than we thought. 
We're exhausted. <laughs> we're, we're worn out and we're, we're taking care of these lives and we're trying to shape them and form them. It, often, our expectations are one thing and reality is another and it can be difficult for us to navigate when what we thought would be true is not exactly what's happening. What are your expectations as a follower of Jesus? You have expectations. You have hopes You anticipate that this life is going to go a certain way because you have begun to trust in Christ, because you followed Him. But but what do you think it's going to be like? Are you going to be let down? Are there going to be surprises? Is it going to be like waking up on Christmas morning and you got none of the things you asked for? (laughs) This is not what I thought. Sometimes that's because we've actually misunderstood Jesus. Sometimes that's because we've misunderstood the gospel itself. Sometimes it's because we haven't actually studied what Jesus taught, how we should follow him, and what following him would result in. In our text this morning, Jesus is shaping the expectations of his followers. He wants them to know what they're getting into. He wants them to have clarity And I think that the modern American church needs to hear what Jesus is saying and what he is going to reveal so that we might have proper biblical expectations as we live this life of of discipleship to Jesus Christ. We're going to recap a little bit. We we talked about uh, some of this last week, and we're going to recap a little, but we're going to add on in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. We're going to start, I'm going to read through Mark 8, starting in verse 31. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Mark 8, and we're going to read from verse 31. And I'm going to read all the way to chapter 9, verse 8. I want you to just think about how Jesus is shaping the expectations of his disciples in these verses when I read them. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come and it's or come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter. And James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah 
and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. If the book of Mark is a mountain that we are climbing over, verse 28 of chapter 8 is the pinnacle, the highest point, the midpoint. Everything before verse 28 of chapter 8, or 29 of chapter 8, is leading up to it. Everything after is going down the other side and flowing from it. It is the verse where Peter responds to Jesus' question and says, who, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Remember from last week, you are the Messiah, the chosen one from God to be the sinless servant of God to come and establish his everlasting kingdom and rule and reign forever. You are that Messiah. I confess the truth of your identity. That's who you are. That's what Peter's saying. And everything prior to that section is leading up to that statement. And everything after that statement is flowing from it. That is kind of the pinnacle of the book. It's a centerpiece. It's kind of literally even right in the middle of the book itself. And so it was this monumental reality that Peter had begun to grasp, that this is the real, real identity, that this is God incarnate, this is the true Messiah, that this is the one chosen to establish the kingdom of God there on earth. But then, starting with verse 31, it says that he began to teach that the Son of Man, that's who he is, that's himself, it's another name for himself, must suffer many things. So he says, I'm the Messiah, you got it, Peter, you're right. I'm the Christ, but let me tell you something. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. And they're not getting this rise again stuff. They're just not getting it. It's going right over their heads. They're, they're caught up on the suffering, and it is really messing with them. This would have been a, a, a dramatic change of plans for the disciples. What? You're going to do What? Uh, you just said that you're, that you're the Messiah. That's what we just realized. We, we came to this reality. You're the one. You're going to establish the kingdom. And then Peter uh, starts hearing this, this new thing, and this really is a new teaching. If you study Mark, the, the, the promise or the prediction of the death of Christ, the suffering of Christ, has not appeared yet up to this point. It's the first time this is really coming forth. Jesus starts saying, hey, I'm going to suffer. Peter's not having it. He, he doesn't know how to deal with it. That's why he takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. In other words, what they thought was going to happen would be the kingdom is going to be established. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to set up an everlasting kingdom. It's happening now, boys. We're going to set up the kingdom. The 12 of us and Jesus, we're going to do it. We're doing it now. They had read Old Testament prophecies like Habakkuk 2, verse 14, which says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. They thought the whole world would be filled with the glory of God. They, they, they had read about it, and they thought that this would happen at the first coming of the Messiah, and here the Messiah is, and they're anticipating global glory, the kingdom established. And now Jesus begins talking about suffering and death. 
Peter can't handle it. I think they're down. They're they're sorrowful. They're they're struggling. All this talk about rejection. All this talk about death. I, th- I thought you were the Messiah. How does the Messiah die? What is what is that? How does God come into the earth? God in the flesh. How does He come and suffer? This isn't really clicking with them. In other words, they had a set of expectations, didn't they? They had a certain set of expectations that were completely upset and upturned, obliterated. When Jesus begins talking about his own suffering, he begins talking about his own suffering. They didn't know how to deal with it. And so what begins to happen, I believe, in the following section, the section we just read, Jesus begins to correct them a little bit. He, he, not, he now begins to give them what they do need to understand to have the proper expectations. Uh, they, they had all their expectations wrong about the Messiah at this point. So Jesus is now offering them some new ways of thinking that would enable them to live this life as a disciple uh, the right way, the, the right expectations. You can almost think of it like ballasts in a boat, ballasts that are, are balancing the boat so that it doesn't tip over one way or the other. Jesus offers two ways of thinking, two sets of expectations that will enable them to face the life that's about to come to face the life as they begin to set out following Jesus. They need these two sets of expectations to balance them in life. And really, you're a disciple of Jesus this morning. You believe Jesus rose from the dead. You're, you're saying, hey, I want to follow Jesus. Here, here's what you need. You need the two same sets of expectations. And what are they? We're going to see in our text. You need to have the expectation of suffering and the expectation of glory. You need to have the, the ability to anticipate, you need to anticipate suffering, and then you need to anticipate glory. And if we lose either of those, we get out of balance. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's balancing them out so they have a right understanding of how to follow him. So he just talked about how he's going to suffer and die. And we're going to look at this first expectation. Keep it notes. Here's our first expectation, is they need to anticipate suffering. They're going to need, the disciples are going to need to anticipate suffering. This is all happening about six months before the crucifixion. He's kind of now turned his face toward Jerusalem. He's going to head that direction. He's going to go there to die for the sins of his people. He's focusing now on his disciples so he can train them for the time that he departs. After he tells them that he's going to suffer, look at verse 34. He goes, he calls the crowd to himself with his disciples. It says there in verse 34, he said to them, Now, if anyone would come after me, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die. And if anyone else wants to follow me, here's what you got to understand. You have to deny yourself, take up his cross, and follow me. We often miss the connection that is explicit when we read these together. You see the connection? Jesus saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm on my way to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice for the sins of those who do not deserve it out of sheer love and grace. This is what I'm doing. And if you want to follow me, anyone can follow me. You want to follow me? He's saying anyone would come after me. Here's here's what you have to do. Deny yourself. Get that cross. Take it upon your back. Follow me. Do you understand the weightiness of what he, he's just said? I'm going to die. You've got to be ready to die. 
I'm denying myself as I walk to the cross. You've got to deny yourself if you want to follow me. He's saying, disciples, if you want to follow me, you need to learn this is the way. This is the way that we honor the Lord in a fallen world, in, a, in an adulterous, sinful generation, he calls it here in a little bit later. If you want to follow me, you've got to understand that this is the direction I'm going. You've got to deny yourself and you've got to take up your cross. I, I see two forms of suffering there in that verse. Deny yourself. That's the first idea. This isn't the suffering that comes by persecution. This is the suffering that we, we volunteer for. Self-denial. Uh, Jesus calls us to a life of self-denial. That is to say that Jesus calls us to live not for our own comforts, our own desires, our own uh, self-aggrandizement. We're not living for ourselves. We are denying ourselves. We are not indulging in the passions of the flesh. Our desire is to deny self so that we can live for other people. This is the person who turns away from Uh, living a life that could be lavish and comfortable and rich so that he can live a life that is generous and available to those in need. That's that's self-denial. Is to voluntarily say, I could have this comfort, but for the sake of love, I will give up that comfort to serve someone else. This is the epitome of what Jesus is doing. This is Jesus on his way to the cross. He's, he's denying himself his right to that throne. He didn't deserve to die. And he's walking to the cross for the good of those who do not deserve it. And there's a kind of suffering that is part of the Christian life that we say, when I'm following Jesus, I'm going to engage in self-denial. I'm not going to live for my comforts and my conveniences and my name and my popularity and money for me and a career for me and a name for me. That's not what I'm living for anymore. I'm not about that anymore. I'm about Jesus Christ. I'm going to live for Him. And I'm going to live for others. See, when we actually begin to love people, we don't live for ourselves. We start engaging in a life of self-denial, which entails a form of suffering. We don't get to live with all the extra luxuries of life Because we voluntarily give them up to follow Jesus. This is a kind of lifestyle that magnifies the glory of Christ. You ever known someone who has nothing? Very little. uh, Very little by way of human achievement and wealth and popularity. Because they're always generous with what they do have. Giving. Not only of their money, but of their time and of their resources, of their home. They're giving to people. They're spending time investing in people, pouring themselves out. And if they were to just stop living that self of denial, man, they could really make a name for themselves. They could probably have a big career. They could probably make a lot of money. They could probably have a big name. But they've chosen to follow Jesus down that Calvary road. And what does that do? That magnifies the worth of Christ, doesn't it? It shows that that person doesn't treasure money as much as he treasures Christ. That Christ is more valuable to him than the things he can attain out of this life. A life of self-denial is a life that magnifies the beauty and the glory and the value of Jesus Christ. So this is the kind of first kind of suffering that Jesus invites us into. But that's not the only kind. He also says, take up your cross. And that's not voluntary. Jesus didn't volunteer in the sense, I guess I could put it this way. 
you know, the disciples didn't end up volunteering to die. It was the Romans, it was the people who found them and didn't like their message, and they put them on crosses. In fact, all of the disciples would end up going to their death, except John, who would die on an island in exile. All of them would end up having to die to take up their cross. There's a kind of suffering that when you begin to follow Jesus, you say, I am willing to face the persecution that the world might throw at me. I'm committed to him. I'm going to stand with him. If the world stands against him, I'm standing with him. If the world wants to kill Jesus, I'm going to stand with him anyway. And if they want to kill me along with Jesus, I'll gladly go and die. I'm going to take up my cross. One commentator was describing what this would have sounded like to the disciples uh, in the first century. You know, the, the cross, we, we wear a cross around our necks. We have crosses, nice crosses in our churches. To, to hear the cross in the first century would have been just a gross, brutal form of torture. That's what it would have come to your mind when you heard about this cross. And so Jesus would have said, take up your cross. I think all the disciples cringed. The Roman cross? Put one of those? The commentator wrote, Jesus' saying evokes a picture of a condemned man going out to die who is forced to carry on his back the cross beam upon which he is to be nailed at the place of his execution. It was a scandal to be nailed to a cross. You are considered to be cursed to be nailed to a cross. And here Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you're going to live a life of voluntary self-denial for the good of others, but also you've got to be willing to come and die with me. You've got to be willing to grab that cross like a criminal and walk that walk with that beam on your back to the place of your own execution. If someone hates you in the name of Christ, you've got to be willing to be hated. You've got to be willing to suffer with me. If you want to follow me, this is what I'm calling you to. I wonder how many Christians have actually understood any of this. They want Jesus to be their, their Savior. They want to get to heaven. They want fire insurance. Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer, invite you into my heart, and then I'm going to go on living however I want to live. But I'm glad I can get to heaven because you'll save me. And they've never considered what this might mean for them. That Jesus actually said, I'm not making this up, straight out of the Bible. Jesus says, you've got to deny yourself. This is part of what it means to know and follow Jesus. You deny yourself, you're not living for yourself anymore. You've got to take up that cross and say, Jesus, I will follow you to the very death. If you so desire, if that's what it will cost, I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to stand with you wherever you lead me. One of my favorite examples of this, where really the kind of self-denial suffering and the persecution suffering come together is in Acts 21. With, with Paul. And Paul's saying, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I need to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to preach in Jerusalem. And there's this prophet, Agabus, who, who appears. And Agabus, I don't know if he's a more dramatic guy, but he, he wants to make a point to Paul. And he goes up to Paul, and he takes off Paul's belt. Okay, Paul's going, what are you doing, Agabus? He takes off Paul's belt, and he starts tying up his own hands and his own feet with Paul's belt. It's this major demonstration of what he's about to say. He's, he, he has to be lying down or some contorted figure. I don't know how he's doing this. But he then says to him, hey, listen, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you know what they're going to do to you. They're going to do this to you. They're going to bind you. They're going to take you. They're going to throw you into prison. If you go to Jerusalem, let me give you a visual demonstration of what's going to happen to you. It's going to be this. <laughs> and you know what Paul says? I love Paul. 
He goes, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's living this life of self-denial. I'm not in this life for me. I'm not in this life for what I can achieve, what I can attain, what name I can make for myself. And Paul could have made a name for himself. He was a pretty bright guy. But I'm living for Jesus. And if that means I go to Jerusalem and they hate me, if that means I go to Jerusalem and they bind me up, and that means if I go to Jerusalem and they want to kill me, bring it on. That's what I'm here to do. i got a vapor of a life, and I'm going to pour it out for Jesus. And if I die in the process, well, I'm graduated to eternity early. Praise the Lord for that. If they throw me in prison, i got a prison ministry. I'm not ever going to shut up about Jesus. And I'm not going to stop, no matter the cost. I'm going to deny myself. I'm not in it for myself. I'll do whatever it takes. I'm willing to take up my cross. I'm willing to live a life of self-denial. Don't you think that the American church might have been a little coddled and pampered? And so many Christians that uh, are filling churches have, are not hearing this. They're not being taught this. They haven't understood that this is the cost of discipleship, that this is part of what it means to know Christ, that you, you don't follow him to a life of health and wealth and prosperity. That's not what's here. That's not what the Bible says. You follow Jesus into a life of self-denial, pain, and potential suffering for his name because you stand with him when perhaps the whole world might not. Have we heard that before and have embraced that? I think we need to embrace that afresh this morning. And we need to say this is what Jesus has called us to do. This is what he has called us to be. I, I like the example of... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've probably heard of him. In the 1940s, he became a well-known pastor, preacher, theologian. During uh, the Nazi regime, he faced a lot of Nazi oppression. And there was kind of a shallow uh, Christian church at the time that was kind of going with whatever, you know, the, the Nazi Germany wanted him to do. And, and, and Bonhoeffer kind of stood as a uh, resistor to that, w- w- which was going on, and, and spoke up against it. Uh, He was eventually captured by the Gestapo. He was hanged April 9th, 1945. They killed him. Uh, But before he died, he wrote a book that is still being printed and still being read. And I think the message is timely for us. The book's called The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the most moving lines that he he wrote, and one of the things I want to present to, to us this morning to consider was, these words he says, very simple, but it comes out of his study of these verses that we're studying this morning. He said this, he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You think about that one, when, when Christ calls a man to himself, he bids him come and die. That's part of the cost. That's part of the embrace of this Savior as he's calling you into something. This is what Paul would go on to tell the churches as he's discipling them and strengthening them. In Acts 14, he goes with Barnabas, and they're strengthening all the churches. It says that what was the message that he gave to these churches? It says this, that it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. It's through many tribulations. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to follow him into tribulation. That's where he's leading you. You realize, church, that in following Jesus, this is what you signed up for? Um. This is not the fine print at the bottom of the page. You're like, wait, I didn't know that was there. That's right here. 
This is what he calls us to. This is not some sort of like super Christianity, radical Christianity. This is just Christianity, just what it is. And in previous generations of Christians knew and understood this and lived this way. And sometimes in our, in our context, we're so affluent and rich that it would hurt people's feelings or it would turn people away to suggest that Jesus would demand so much. But this is literally what he taught. And so this is what the disciples are hearing. Remember, let's get back in their shoes. This is what they're hearing. Deny myself? Wait, I've got to take up my cross? Jesus hadn't yet gone to his cross, so they might not have known exactly what that meant, but they certainly understood the idea of Roman torture, which was common in those days. I've got to do that? I, I think they're, they're down. Maybe down is an understatement. I think they're maybe depressed. I think they're disillusioned. They're going, what? And I wonder if they're beginning to wonder, is this worth it at all? Like, why would I do this? I wonder if any of you are asking that same question. Well, why would I follow Jesus if that's what he's inviting me into? Why would I be a Christian if he has called me to deny myself and to be prepared to suffer and die on a cross, to be prepared to be tortured on a cross? Why would I do that? That doesn't make sense. And I think Jesus knew that that was kind of how they're, they're feeling. They already had struggled so much with his own declaration that he would suffer. And now he begins to give them a reason for this all. Why is this worth it? And, and church, we need to, if we're going to suffer well and follow Jesus to where he's called us to go and be, and we will follow him anytime, place, anywhere, we've got to keep in view the promise of glory. Which is why Jesus now begins to reveal who he is in a way that's, that's visual, tangible, that they can sense, that they can see. Not only do they have a cognitive understanding that he is the Messiah, Jesus now wants to give them a vision of his glory that will sustain them in the suffering. And that is true for us this morning, that we will not be able to sustain ourselves through suffering if we have no vision of the glory of Christ. And so look at chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after His coming power. I think he's talking about the coming transfiguration that he's about to describe. He's not saying that I'm going to bring the whole kingdom. It's going to happen to you right now, right here. He's saying I'm going to show you the kingdom. I'm going to show you a preview of the kingdom. I'm going to be the king in the land. I'm going to show the glory of the kingdom right here, right now. And uh, this is going to be something that you will take with you. This will be something that you will remember. This is to be something that will shape you. This will be something that will enable you to suffer. So look at verse 2. And this is our second point. In terms of these two ballasts that, that, that help us get through life, there's these two uh, expectations we need to have. First, that we will suffer with Christ. We will share in His sufferings. But secondly, the expectation and the anticipation of glory is absolutely critical for our ability to suffer. So he takes them up on the mountain. Verse 2, And after six days... Luke says eight days, but it's a different measure of counting. Luke counted the first day and the last day. Mark just counts in between. It's different ways. It was common in that day to count in kind of various ways. 
So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are uh, three of the, the 12 disciples. They are the inner three, and they get particularly um, privileged to participate in some of Jesus' miracles. This has happened before, and Jesus only invites them. And this is what's happening here. The three, Peter, James, and John, get to go up to the high mountain. What mountain, you ask? Well, they've been up in Caesarea Philippi in the previous section. It's most likely Mount Hermon, which would have been north, which would have been a private area. It's a kind of bigger mountain. There's snow at the top of it. Probably didn't climb the entire thing, get to the very top, but they went up to some degree. They're on their way up the high mountain by themselves. It's just the four of them. And then it says, and he was transfigured before them. That's what it says. It's like, give me some more information. What does that even mean? He just transfigured before them? Luke included the idea that they were going up to pray and that they, he'd begun praying when they began to notice something's happening with Jesus. He's transfiguring. And what does that mean? The, the word means, that the little the Greek word is metamorph. It sounds like metamorphosis, metamorpheo. It has two word or two uh, parts of that word, uh, meta, which is the idea of changing, morpheo, uh, the idea of a form. He's changing his form, and what we do see, if we do want more information, all the accounts include something of the blazing light of Christ as he's doing this. Mark includes this idea that his clothes begin becoming radiant, almost like a shine is beginning to burst from his garments, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's almost like Mark had a problem, you know, trying to get his clothes clean. And he's looking, he's like, oh, that's what I wanted. Like, that's the kind of white I was aiming for. But he, he sees it, so he writes, it's like no one could bleach them. And I tried, no one else could do it. But that's the white. So it's uh, this amazing, incredible vision that Jesus begins shining. <laughs> He's shining. And this is the visible glory that now is shining through Jesus Christ. He's uh, you know, saying without saying, you said I was the Christ. Let me show you a visual presentation of who I am. Matthew says it like this. His face shone like the sun. You ever stared up at the sun? Don't do it. You're not supposed to. You'll burn your eyes out. And here's Jesus, like the sun at full strength, just blazing glory, white garments, shining, as white as light. Luke says his face became different. Mark is saying it's radiant, it's intensely white. All these ideas pointing to this, this blaze of glory. And if you were an Old Testament student, you would know that often in the Old Testament, how did God reveal himself? The blazing light of glory, right? Moses in the burning bush is a, a, a blazing glory. Uh, God reveals himself to Moses. It's blazing light so much that when he comes down the mountain, he himself is shining. When God leads the Israels out, he appears to them as a, a fire at times to show them where to go. Paul said to Timothy that God dwells in unapproachable light. In heaven, we know that there will be no need of sun or moon. Why? Because the glory of God will be the light. So what is Jesus doing? In peeling back some of his humanity, he's revealing the glory of God. In other words, he is showing unmistakably, demonstrating that there is no question to his identity that he is God. He is the one true God. He is the real God 
The God of the Old Testament is making himself known, revealing himself to three men on a mountain outside of Israel in the north. The light of God is breaking through in the person of Jesus Christ. It's his way of helping them understand who he is. Again, Jesus wants them to see the glory. Because if you're going to suffer, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to deny yourself, if you're going to take up your cross, you've got to see the glory. You've got to have a taste of the glory. And that's going to get you through the dark times. So let me show you the visible glory. But there's not only a visible glory, there's a historical witnesses. Look at what happens next. Verse 4, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So two men, Moses and Elijah, appear on there. You say, what's going on here? Why them? Why, why two men? Well, first of all, there's a couple reasons. One is, uh, all throughout the Bible, there's this idea that if you want to establish a claim, you have to establish it on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Uh, you have to establish it on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You can't just say, here's a, a crime that someone committed, and they'll say, okay, we believe you. No, they would have to have other witnesses that would uh, stand behind the claim. This is in Deuteronomy 19. If you wanted to... This is in 1 Timothy 5. You want to make a claim against an elder, you have to have two or three witnesses. If you're going to discipline someone in the church, you have to have two or three witnesses. This is just a biblical idea that when there's a claim made, it has to be verified with witnesses. Well, here is Jesus displaying who he is. And here are now two witnesses called to the stand, Elijah and Moses, historical witnesses brought forward as witnesses to the glory of Christ. You might ask, well, why Moses and why Elijah? Why not, I don't know, why not Abraham and Isaiah? I mean, why, why these two guys? Um, there's, there's lots of different ideas as to why this might be. The traditional view is that Moses represents the law and that Elijah represents the prophets. And so these two men are standing up as the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament, pointing to the character and the identity of Christ. I think that's uh, true. I don't think that's all that's going on. I, I'm more persuaded that the main thing that's happening here is that Moses and Elijah both are people who in service to God suffered greatly because of their faithfulness. Moses, what did he do? Stood by God's will and God's plan to lead the people out from Egypt. He stood before Pharaoh, didn't he? And then he led the people out of Egypt. And then what did the people of Egypt, or sorry, the people of uh, Israel begin to do? They began to complain. They began to point fingers at him. They began to accuse him. And what did he have to do? He had to stand his ground as God's man called to do this. He faced all kinds of opposition, not only by Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but also by his very own people. He became an object of derision from his own people. He was a man who suffered for the purposes of God and, and did what God's will was in spite of people resisting him. What did Elijah do? Well, he was always facing off with the false prophets. Remember what he did? The prophets of Baal, the confrontation on Mount Carmel, the wicked kings of Israel, King Ahab called him a troubler of Israel. Is that you, troubler of Israel? Jezebel hated him, wanted him killed, wanted to knock him out of the picture. Here's Isaiah, or Elijah doing all he can to, to speak for the Lord as a prophet, to lead the people of God back to righteousness. And he is being resisted even by the, his own kings, the kings of Israel. He gets to the point where he's so depressed, he thinks he's like the only God-fearing person in all of Israel. And God has to say, no, there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. You're not alone. In other words, both 
Moses and Elijah are those who had could testify to the reality that the godly suffer. That, that it's almost as if they're saying, you, you've heard what Jesus had just talked about, that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die. And you understand that he just told you that if you want to follow him, you've got to deny yourself and follow him that way. And guess what? I want to bring up two other people who are going to testify the same thing, that if you are going to be faithful to God in this adulterous generation, what's going to happen? You're going to need to deny yourself, and you're going to be prepared to die. In fact, I think this is confirmed, but when you look at Luke, and Luke uh, actually mentions what they're talking about. What, what are Moses and Elijah talking about with Jesus? You know what it says they're talking about? It says they're talking about the departure of Jesus. It says, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Well, what was he going to Jerusalem to do? To die, to suffer, to be rejected, suffer, and die. That's what they were all talking about. It's like, oh, Moses is saying to Jesus, oh, you're going to go to Jerusalem. You're going to suffer and die. Oh, yeah, I remember when I was being faithful and everyone resisted me. And I was trying to lead them to righteousness and, and no one wanted to fall. There's very few. And, and I, uh, Elijah goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what it's like to, to try to preach the truth and no one wants to hear it. And try to fight for righteousness and no one's willing to follow. And Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm about to do the same thing. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I've been preaching the message and there's not many people who believe it. And I'm going to go suffer and die. And basically, as if it's to say, this is the plan for the godly. This is the plan. And it's testified by Moses. It's testified by Elijah. Jesus himself. He's going to die. That's what's being confirmed here. I, I can't imagine. Could you imagine what this would have been like for Peter, James, and John? Your whole life you'd studied the Old Testament. <laughs> it's like having grown up studying American history and you read all these stories about George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and all these amazing heroic figures that you studied and then somehow there they are right in front of you. There's Abraham Lincoln and, you, and there's George Washington. They're talking about something and you're like, what? Uh, Peter, James, and John must have been out of their minds. And, and so I like what Peter does. He, he says, verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, uh, it's good that we're here. Glad that we got to be a part of this, you know. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then I love this line. For he did not know what to say. <laughs> for they were all terrified. There's some people who when they don't know what to say, they don't say anything. And then there are some people who when they don't know what to say, they start saying everything. They start talking. Which, which are you? Some of you are the, the latter, right? You just, I don't know what to say. You start talking. Well, Peter's that guy. He, he doesn't know what to say, so he starts talking. Um, yeah, Jesus, it's great that we're here. We've got some tents right here. We're going to start putting together some tabernacles. And blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But what this does indicate, that, that the fact that he's trying to build tabernacles, tents there, is that he's still not thinking about the death of Christ. He hasn't got that yet. He wants to build them a place where they can worship and they can get their, uh, their revelation. This was the place, you know, the tabernacle. You've got to get the revelation from God in the Old Testament. Let's build three of them. You know, we can learn from Moses. We can learn from Elijah. And, and of course, Jesus, you go have your own tabernacle too. I'll, I'll even, we won't even need one for ourselves. We'll just build them for you guys and we'll learn from you. And, and from here, from Mount Hermon, we will set up the kingdom. 
man, that'll be great. Let's just get it going right now. He does not get it. No clue. It's as if they're, he's just not getting at all what Jesus has been saying. I'm going to die. And you're going to suffer with me. The kingdom's not coming right now. It's not happening right now. He's not getting it. But we get then this third, this third aspect of the revealing of the glory. First was the, the, the visible glory. Second was the historical witness. And now it's the audible confirmation. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. That word overshadowed is the idea of something just almost coming into existence from nothing. It's just appearing there from nowhere, a supernatural cloud, again, reminding us of the glory cloud of the Old Testament, right? It says, then out of that cloud, a voice, there's a voice that comes out of the cloud. Of course, we understand this is God the Father. A voice came out of the cloud, and what does it say? This is my beloved Son. Listen to him, Peter. Listen to what he's been saying. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He will be rejected and he will raise. But listen, it's what he's trying to say to you. I mean, God the Father wouldn't be begging and saying it the way I'm saying it. But it's as if he wants to put an exclamation point on the things that Jesus has been saying. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You've got to understand that this is part of the plan for the Messiah. He will come. He will suffer. He will die. He will rise again. This is part of the plan of the glorious redemption that God is bringing through the Messiah. Listen to Him. There is You, you, you want this kingdom without a cross. It's not going to happen. You want the glory without the suffering. It's not going to happen. You want to be in heaven without His death, without your own dying to self. It's not going to happen. You've got to listen to my son. You've got to listen to him. He's the third witness. Elijah and Moses are the first two. The third witness appears. It's God himself saying, trust him. He does have to die. See, suffering and glory. There will be suffering, but there will be glory. He's revealing them. There's glory in this. In fact, Elijah died. Moses died. Actually, Elijah did not die. Take that back. He was taken up into heaven. They were then revealed there. It's as if to say, look, here they are in glory. They're doing okay. And you will too. You follow him and you will suffer. But look, there's glory. It took Peter a long time to, to get this. But at the end of his life, he wrote the epistle. First Peter in chapter 4. Listen to what he says. I mean, you can almost trace it back to these, you know, this experience. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. See, he, it's almost as he's reflecting on this, the suffering first, then the glory. Don't get the order wrong. Suffering first, then glory. Suffer now, glory later. Suffer in this life, glory for all eternity. And then it says that, verse 8, they suddenly were looking around. They saw no one except Jesus. That was it. He is uh, above and beyond these other men. These other men were mere men. Jesus is God incarnate. He's revealed himself. And so the question that was on the disciples' minds, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be worth it to follow you to your death? 
is answered in the transfiguration. And the question that you have, is it going to be worth it to follow Jesus in this life, in the life of self-denial, in the life where we take up the cross? Is it going to be worth it? And the answer is yes. Yes. An emphatic yes. Deny yourself and take up your cross for the Lord Jesus Christ. And will it be worth it? Yes, in glory, all will be worth it. I want you to see this at the very end of the Bible in in Revelation 5, and we're going to be done. Revelation chapter 5. In chapter 4, there's been, John has been taken up to this vision, and he sees, I'll just kind of summarize chapter 4, he sees these thrones with 24 elders on them with crowns on their head and they're worshiping uh, the one on the throne and then there's these weird looking angels there's four they're called living creatures in verse six of chapter four full of eyes wings all kinds of bizarre things and they're worshiping again they're worshiping the one on the throne and then you get in chapter five i'll just kind of read and explain as we go and we'll wrap up here he says then i saw at the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll Written within and on the back, we can, we can picture that scroll, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? You see, the scroll represents the title deed of the earth. Who has the right to rule? Who has the right to be king? Who has the right to be judge? Who has the right over all the earth? It says in verse 3, No one in heaven or earth. For under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, that's John, began to weep. This is the same John who had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders, so one of these guys on these 24 thrones says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, now verse 6. Some weird, weird imagery here. It says, Between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, so in this group of kind of bizarre creatures, it says, He saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Who is this church? This is Jesus. But he's, he's described here in such bizarre ways, it's hard for us to recognize him, as though he'd been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So these very important people, these weird angelic creatures are all falling before the Lamb. It says they're each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There you are, Christian. That's where we're represented here. We are ones who pray. Our prayers are collected and brought before the Lamb. And then it says in verse 9 that they sang a new song. What are they saying? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then it's this glorious picture. 
It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. This is like saying I couldn't count them. There were zillions of them. Zillions upon zillions. Just as far up as the eye can see. Myriads and myriads of these angelic beings, these hosts around this throne room where the Lamb is there at the center. And it says they're all crying out. Could you imagine the roar of this worship? The sound of these voices. What are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. They are saying He is worthy. He is the worthy Lamb. He Himself died, but now He is in glory. He is worthy to receive power. All the power on earth, all the power we have is to be devoted to Him and His service. All the wealth that we have is His. All the wealth and the riches of every person on the planet should be devoted to giving Him glory. All the wisdom of man, all the thoughts of man, all the ideas of man should be aimed at promoting the worth of the Lamb. All might, all blood, sweat, and tears put towards showing how great the Lamb is. All honor and glory, all blessing. And then it gets bigger beyond this angelic host. Verse 13, Every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, what are they all saying? To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Church, is Jesus going to be worth it? Yes. Emphatically, yes. All creation says He is worth it. All the angels say He's worth it. All the elders and angelic beings and all creatures in heaven and earth and under the earth, they're all saying, what are those words? Worthy. He is worthy of it all. He is worthy of everything we've got. Giving it all for Him. Dying if necessary. And certainly to deny ourselves in this life and live for Him. You will be paid back at the resurrection of the just. So live now for Christ. It is not right to treat Jesus like some genie who can give you a card to heaven and then live as if he's not worthy of your all. It is a form of idolatry and blasphemy to treat Jesus as if he does not deserve all glory, all honor, all wealth, all power for all time from every creature. And by the grace of God, as we behold His glory, we become more and more willing to say, Yes, Lord, I'll deny myself. I'll take up my cross. And I'll follow You. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this morning that You are worthy. Oh, forgive us for puny ideas of who you are. Miniature ideas of Jesus. Thoughts that are unworthy of your glory. Ideas about you that are offensive because we've made you just like a mere man, like a guru, like a life coach, like a mere teacher. When you are the most worthy, glorious, deserving of all honor, Savior, forgive us of the times we treat you as an addendum to our life 
And may we see, as the hosts of heaven see, that you are worthy of it all. Help us to live that way. Give us the Spirit to convict us and empower us for such a life that we might be able to face suffering with joy, knowing that there will be a day when it will all be made worth it. We pray these things in Jesus' name.